Hello everyone and welcome to Danger on Delmarva. This is both a podcast and YouTube video that explores the tragedies and disasters that have occurred on the Delmarva Peninsula. If you're not familiar with Delmarva, it's an area that's in the mid-Atlantic region of the U.S. that encompasses all of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. It's really a wonderful place to live. There's gorgeous parks to visit. The location is really central to a lot of larger um, locations such as New York, D.C., Baltimore, and that gives, a, gives us access to places that we can go to explore our history. And it's not extremely far away. Um, my name is Rhonda Granny Jefferson, and I'll be your host today to take you down some of the treacherous paths that can wind around Delmarva. This episode can be heard on podcast apps as well as on YouTube, so please excuse me if I use the terms podcast and video interchangeably. Now, this is a channel that explores many different types of tragedies. This means that any episode that I cover may have themes that are disturbing to some listeners or viewers. This episode will have discussions of death as well as violence with some video and or audio, depending on how you're partaking of this episode, though I will try my best to make it as least graphic as possible. Um, there are some things that I will feel are important, such as hearing the urgency of a situation. So that will be on there, but I'll always give a warning before I start to play the videos. And I'm going to try to play them all around the same time so there's not a lot of jumping or jumping around. Now, I love doing this show because to me, all of this is real. I live in this area where these events have occurred and sometimes I'm very close to them. You know, being once on a highway where a shooter was going you know, down the highway and actually just randomly shooting at people. I was about three minutes or so from where he actually was, but thankfully I was in the opposite direction of where he was going. But at the time I didn't know that. I had just heard that there was this person doing this. Now this particular case does resonate with me in a number of different ways. It makes me angry, sad, disappointed, then back to angry all over again at different things. Now I will go over some of these things near the end of the story though. Now the day that we're going to be discussing, May 8th, 2020, started out like any other, or at least as any day could begin normally during the middle of a worldwide pandemic. Lydia Marino, age 85, and her husband, Paul Marino, age 86, went to visit their son's grave in the veteran cemetery that was in Bear, Delaware. They normally did go to visit him. His name was Anthony pretty much every day. Um, it was you know, stated that pretty much every day they went to see him. And he was 54 when he passed away. And since that time, you know, that 
the parents had made this their daily routine to go to the cemetery. Um, now, on that day, no one could have ever imagined that it would end up like it did, that this may have been the very last time that they actually got to go to the gravesite, visit with their son, and speak with his grave or at his grave one last time to grieve him. What nobody could foresee is that there was a senseless act that actually was overshadowed by a national pandemic as well as recognition of the social injustices that have been around. And with that, something that probably would have been given nationwide attention with follow-up on actually received relatively little um, you know, coverage. Now, as with many um, crimes, sometimes the victims are overshadowed by a curiosity by others. And what I mean by that is when there's an unknown or when there's something that is unusual, is something that's not been seen before, and I know I've, I've said this in previous episodes as well, there's a curiosity that takes over. I think as humans, we have a tendency to want to find out what we don't understand. So when we have a situation that is unusual to us, we're drawn to that because we want to understand why. We want to try to make it sure that make sure that nothing like that ever happens again because we don't want other people going through a similar situation. So we have that natural curiosity. Then sometimes it's overshadowed. Um, the victims are overshadowed because you know, newspapers, articles, they need to be sold or you know, ads that are being sold in different magazines. They wanna make sure that they have uh, you know, a story that will bring people in so what's more interesting though a lot of times the background of the perpetrator may seem more interesting than the lives that he took at least on you know things like selling magazines or ads so the victims in a crime are sometimes so overshadowed by the person who actually committed it that their names, their lies are sometimes relegated to kind of a back page or a one-line blurb in, you know, in, in an article. Now, there were a few cases of this being covered in some of the larger markets that are close to us, such as Baltimore or Philadelphia, but you know, not really a lot. So I want to take a few moments to find out more about Lydia and Paul. So they were loved by their neighbors. Lydia was born in Italy in a town that was about 45 miles from Pompeii. I'm going to try to say the name, but not entirely sure if I have the pronunciation correct. I'm going to say Aquera, Italy, and she was born in March of 1935. Now, many people in her Elkton, Maryland neighborhood remember her for her cooking and the way that she kind of brought her taste of Italy to Delaware. Now, from stories that were told, she was very picky about what type of zucchini and summer squash that um, she would have. But once she did find that perfect squash and she had very particular um, requirements for those squash, then she would 
fry them and share them with her neighbors. You know, and some of her neighbors had lived next to her for more than 40 years. So um, Paul also did like to cook and not to sound cliche saying that it's the, the guy out there cooking on his grill, but that's what he liked to do. So in the summer, especially, you could probably walk through the neighborhood and smell the love. To me, I can say that cooking is really a labor of love. Um, and it sounds like that's what Lydia did. And so, you know, you'd have Paul outside on the grill and Paul himself, he was born in Poughkeepsie, New York in January of 1934. Now he was an army veteran and he married Lydia in November of 1958. Now I did mention they were going to visit the grave of their son, but they did have two other sons. They were twins named Raymond and Paul Jr. Now, Lydia and Paul were going to visit their son Anthony's grave. He was the youngest of the three brothers and he had cerebral palsy and died in 2017. Now, the couple did try to stay busy throughout their lives. Even after the twins had moved out of the home, Anthony did still live with them. Um, but after his time in the army, Paul went to work at Diamond Printing and that was near the city of Wilmington. Now, at the time of this event, they did live in Elkton, Maryland. And Elkton really is very close to Wilmington, um, you know, very close to the cemetery as well. Depending on where you live in either city, it's about a 25 minute drive. I'm gonna say 25 minute drive for most people. Myself, I probably take a lot longer because I drive really slow, um, but you know, it's, it's not an incredibly far ride for them to go from Elkton to Wilmington. Um, from what one of the neighbors stated regarding Anthony, he was very intelligent, but it was the mobility issues that he had and why he stayed with his parents. So the Marinos retired, um, or M Mr. Marino retired in 1994, and that's when he went to work, um, you know, really not really work, but he wanted to paint for himself. That was something he enjoyed. Now, Lydia, she continued to cook because she loved to do so. And some people reported that once Anthony passed away, that, you know, she cooked even more than she had in the past. Now, you know, I would think, and you know, I've never, of course, met them, but sometimes when I'm stressed, I like to bake. Other times, if I'm anxious, it's a way to keep myself occupied and keep moving, you know, while doing something that I enjoy. So I almost wonder if she was using that to fill the time that she would have normally spent um, taking care of Anthony. You know, he was a very, you know, integral part of their lives and they wanted to be able to speak with him every day and they made that visit every day. Now there is a neighbor, um, a Mr. Jurgens, and he was the one that I mentioned that had been living next to them for 40 years. And he knew the routine of the family. He knew that they would get up and they would go visit their son. Now, after the incident of May 8th, they would both be found in that cemetery and later would be interred in that very same cemetery next to their son.
So we know this, this show is about usually not very happy events. And unfortunately, this is one of the darkest chapters in Delaware that I can think of. And it's happened so recently. What happened to this lovely elderly couple who'd been together for decades? What happened to them in a place where they should expect privacy and respect so that they could continue to mourn and grieve their son? What happened was 29-year-old Sheldon Francis of Middletown, Delaware, walked up to them and shot them. It was around 10.15 a.m., and they were in the Veterans Cemetery. Later, one of their surviving sons said that they didn't know if they had actually made it to Anthony's grave one more time and visited him or if they had not quite made, made it. Where they were found was kind of in the middle, so it could not be ascertained if they were walking towards his grave or if they had already gotten to spend one last time talking to him at his place of rest before being killed in the very same place that they were later to be buried as well. Now, in this event, Lydia was, was shot. They were both shot. Lydia passed away at the scene, whereas Paul passed away the next day at the hospital. And I would absolutely love to tell you that the police were able to sit down, interrogate Sheldon Francis, and find out exactly why he would commit a crime against people that he did not know it would not have exactly brought closure to the family because just speaking personally, I don't think there could ever be complete closure. You know, I can't speak for everybody, but just through the experiences that I've been through, I know that things can get better, but, but there might be something close to closure, but I don't know if that can ever actually be achieved. And in this particular case as well, you know, I think, a lot of the closure comes if, if someone can see that the perpetrator has remorse. That will not be the case in this episode. The reason that we can't sit here and discuss Francis's motivation is because he died as well that day. At the beginning of his death investigation, it wasn't clear whether or not he had taken his own life or if he died as a result of being shot by a police officer. Earlier, Francis and police had been involved in a shootout, which is one of the few times that I can say I've heard those words about any case in Delaware. Now, Francis had fired 78 rounds at police that they know of. Um, he even hit vehicles that, or a vehicle that they used in armed incidents. And he did some pretty severe damage. I will be putting up a picture at this point, um, or actually a few pictures, where you can see the damage that was done to the, um, the what's called a bear cat. And I was really quite surprised at how much damage there was done. Um, so looking at these pictures, 
you know, I'm not sure what to think. You know, these vehicles are heavily armored, yet this particular one was damaged pretty good. Um, but it did do the job it was supposed to. It protected the first responders. I also have to question Sheldon Francis's firepower. What was he using that was so strong that it could have also or almost broken through the windshield of that vehicle? Now, thankfully, though, no additional people were hurt or killed as a result of the total number of bullets that were being volleyed back and forth. But also, the shock of anyone who may have initially seen the incident, you know, whether it was a citizen who was walking or had seen things happening, that's going to stick with them for the rest of their lives. And as with so many senseless and mass shootings, and I do want to be clear, every murder is senseless. But when we have a case where we don't know exactly what the motive is, where there's no connection from one person to another, then a crime that is senseless to begin with is taken to a whole new level and to a point where it's almost impossible to understand. So sometimes the motive or you know, the, reason, the reasoning that a person has will be presented in court to help those left behind at least have some answers. So if there's a case or even if there's a plea bargain where they allocute to what happened um, at the time of the crime, at least the family and loved one get some answers. But those answers cannot change the fact that, you know, the family of the victims will never see their loved one again. But sometimes in those cases, just having a little bit more knowledge about the events of that time or that day will bring at least an understanding um, to the loved ones of the victim. So right now, because there was no trial for this case, it makes finding more information even more difficult. At this time, like I said, there was a beginning of a worldwide pandemic. And there's there was also occurring a new recognition of the social injustices that have happened around the country. Now within the tiny state of Delaware, you have what could have possibly been in the past a lead story, even nationwide, you know, about the savagery of two elderly people who were visiting their late son's grave and being killed. But now this was relegated to you know, just a few blurbs in the newspaper, um, on maybe some bigger affiliate networks, such as Baltimore and Philadelphia, as they sometimes cover some of the bigger stories that happen in Delaware. But, you know, this, this event, it affected a state, a community, and most importantly, the family that was left to grieve. And this family, in only a course of a few seconds, went from having a strong matriarch and patriarch to having no one there anymore. People lost a loving mother and grandmother and a loving father and grandfather. And there's no way that that could ever be replaced. And like I said, in a matter of moments, it just took one's person, one person's action to take that away from a number of people. 
Now, what I want to do now is take you through the course of events of that day with information that was given about the timeline through the Delaware State Police's webpage on Delaware.gov. And of course, I will be linking all of my sources in the description of either the podcast or the video. So what occurred is around 10.13 a.m. on that morning in May of 2020, the Delaware State Police was sent to the Delaware Veterans Memorial Cemetery in Bear, Delaware, where they had received reports that shots had been fired. Officers did discover two victims that had been shot, Lydia and Paul, and Mrs. Marino was pronounced deceased while at the cemetery, but Mr. Marino did live for a little bit longer, but he did pass away the next day at a local hospital. Now, while the police were investigating, they made announcements throughout the area um, to have cars avoid traffic and stay away from the area. Later, it was upgraded, though, to where one whole section of road going in both directions were, was shut down. So the police started to limit the number of civilians that might be in the area. At around 11.08, though, police officers saw a man who would be ID'd as Sheldon Francis. Um, he ran into the wooded area in Brennan Estates, and that was a housing community in the area. And so officers continued to to secure a wider, um, you know, a wider piece of property or, um, you know, pretty much to have a wider security zone um, throughout the area. The traffic situation was changed to where more roads were shut down, um, going in both directions. And then... Later on, you know, more road closures just started to being adding on because of the ever-changing situation. Now, some residents were asked to stay inside or shelter in place, but others were actually evacuated from the area. So again, that kind of shows the severity that they're taking people out of their homes. There had to be a lot of worry for family members who may not have been able to get through to the area. Um, imagine if you're at work and your loved one is still at home and you're hearing um, you know, through you know, news reports and updates that there's an active shooter in your area. And that occurred to a gentleman named James Turner. And here's a quote from an interview that he did. It said, I'm sitting at the corner of Fraser and Denny roads and there's just cars pulled to the side of the road as far as the eye can see. At the four-way stop here, his son had called him earlier that day and told him that he had heard what he thought were somewhere between 40 and 50 gunshots. At that point, Mr. Turner did advise him to stay in place, you know, not to leave the house for anything at that point. It was too risky. So, um, also a, another resident of the area, Carol Marie Brown lived about a mile from the cemetery and she and her daughters went into their basement to shelter. Now also though, at the time her husband had gone for a hike in Lums Pond State Park. So, you know, there had to be concern that she didn't know where he was, that he was out there in the exposed open basically. 
Now, the area that Mr. Turner, um, where he was going through, he mentioned a four-way stop. And I'm very familiar with that area. Um, driving down, I would sometimes use that as a landmark. I'm not sure if other people, you know, sometimes when you're traveling a long distance, you might say, okay, I know it's about, you know, this many miles or, you know, this many minutes from point A to point B, then B to C. So I always kind of use this area as a landmark. I knew the cemetery went off in one direction if you turned and, you know, so I could see in my mind's eye, the cars all pulled up around that area. And as far as Lums State Park, I've been there a couple times when I lived in Wilmington and never you know, knew um, that even prior to this, there had been a tragedy that occurred there, which I may cover in a future episode. But now it's like a place that, you know, myself and friends had gone to have a cookout was very close to where this occurred. Now I do want to show some footage of when the vehicle, the Bearcat, was arriving to the area and the suspect had been seen. Um, if you do not want to view or listen to any of that circumstance, what I'll do is I'll put a timestamp on the subtitles. If you're watching through YouTube or if you're listening to the podcast, I'll put it in the description of when these events um, actually take place um, you know, throughout the video what the timestamps are. So um, here is um, a video of the drone, which I will say there's really not anything to hear, but what it did or what it shows is if you're looking at the bottom right of the video, um, you see this vehicle pull up in between two houses. Um, it's kind of assessing a situation because the houses are backed up against a wooded area and, you know, the, they're just trying to, you know, view everything. Now, eventually the vehicle does start to make its way into the wooded area. Um, and it gets to the point until you can, you know, just see its bumper, um, sticking out the very back of it. Now, there is a little bit of time where, you know, it's in there, then all of a sudden, at some point, it will start to back out. So just to keep in time with the video, it'll be a couple of seconds. And now it is starting to back out, which when you first think about it, it's like this is an armored vehicle and it's actually, you know, taking some steps backwards here. And as it comes into view, you can actually see there's something coming out of the front. You can't quite tell what it is, but it's some type of vapor or steam or smoke. Um, I don't know if it's maybe, you know, the muzzle, um, the smoke that happens if the police officers are firing back. But this shows that the Bearcat, which is a very heavily armored vehicle, had to be... Um, you know, pretty much taken out of the area to protect those that were in the Bearcat. To kind of give a comp or more complete rundown of what occurred there, um, I won't be using the officers' names. I know that they're out there, but these officers, 
you know, are in a situation that they're never going to forget. They were fearing for their lives and their colleagues' lives. And I just want to give them, you know, some privacy in that, you know, even though if you are truly interested, you can look up um, information through you know, YouTube or Google um, pretty easily. But um, the team was, was part of SORT, which is the Delaware State Police's Special Operations Response Team. Now, um, Sergeant A was chosen to drive the vehicle with Corporals B, C, D, E, F, and G inside. Now, once they did start to get into the area, into the housing communities, it was decided that Corporal E would get out and get into a home where there was a better view of the surroundings. Now, um, you know, about that time, someone flagged down or a law enforcement officer flagged down the Bearcat to let them know where the suspect had been last seen visually. And that's when they drove between two houses to try to get close, but then gunshots ended up being exchanged. Now, later they did find that the perpetrator had died on scene, but you know, at that moment, it was not really clear whether or not he had decided to take his own life or um, if an officer's um, bullet had, um, had actually hit him. Now, because of the nature of an active shooter situation, the Delaware State Police also used resources from other agencies such as the ATF, FBI, U.S. Marshals, Delaware Department of Natural Resources, um, Newcastle County PD, Wilmington PD, Dover PD, Newark PD, Newcastle County EMT, and Delaware Department of Transportation. So to have all of this occurred, it took a lot of cooperation through different agencies. And, you know, we did have the federal agencies represented as well as more local ones. Um, Dover was mentioned, that is the state capital, almost, you know, directly in the middle of the state. Um, the way I drive, it's about an hour's drive between Dover and the Newcastle area. I know most people could probably make it in much less time. Um, that's just the way I drive. Um, but coincidentally, um, some episodes ago when I covered a situation at a courthouse, the Dover police were there for another matter and actually provided assistance and were even injured um, during a shooting at a courthouse. Um now, so when it came to knowing who killed Lydian Paul, that was never a question at all. It was not a matter of who. It was a matter of why and what would make this young man shoot two loving and caring and beloved people. Now, at this point, information really stopped being relayed through the Delaware State Police site on Delaware.gov. Um, but now through other sources, information did start to come out, which would eventually also be part of a DOJ report um, that investigated the use of force against Sheldon Francis. Um, it was then also determined that um, Sheldon Francis died as a result of a shot by one of the law enforcement officers that were in the area. Now, the investigation into the murders of Paul and Lydia could find no connection between them and the shooter. 
um, after about 10 months is when they released the DOJ report. And it was found, of course, you know, given the situation that the police were justified in the use of force, you know, as he was shooting very steadily at the police officers and did not seem to have a concern if anybody innocent was around. He had already killed two innocent people at the beginning of the day. Now, here are some things that um, we can actually go over and not speculate about because unfortunately, without being able to interview Mr. Francis, some things will come down to speculation or taking a look at what his mindset was at the time. So um, what we do know is we do have body cam footage, helicopter and drone footage. So I did go over the drone a few moments ago, but now we're going to take a look at um, some of the events that occurred on the body cam. Um, I'm not going to show the whole um, the whole recording because at some points, especially on one, it does get very loud. There are a number of rounds that are exchanged in a short period of time, but in the first clip I'm going to bring up, it was a canine officer, so you know, he's concerned about himself, about his fellow officers, then also about the dog that's entrusted in his care and who I'm sure is very, you know, very, you know, good at his job. I have um, a brother-in-law who is a canine officer and you, there's an attachment between an officer and the canine that they have um, for their job and it just cannot be replaced. So... Um, that will be the first clip. And so I'll do what I did before as far as putting down the timestamps of either the video or the um, podcast, just so if you don't want to listen to these exchanges, you don't have to. And I definitely understand, um, which is why I'm putting those timestamps in. I'm going to start it after there's been a volley of rounds exchanged, but there will still be some... Um, some gunshots that are heard, even though I took a, you know, I'm not airing a portion of those. All right, easy, 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 buddy. Easy, Sydney. You may be wondering what occurred when, um, when you heard the expletive from the officer, um, the Bearcat was actually backing out and from the actual angle of the video, I can't tell if he saw the damage to the Bearcat or not but probably just the sight of this armored vehicle backing out the way it did was enough to make him you know, kind of take pause. Now the next um, clip that I'll be sh um, showing or you'll hear the audio for is when an officer was um, you know, trying to get a visual on the suspect. And in the meantime, while he was doing that, he did actually... Um, you know, see the bear cat and tried to wave it into the area um, 
to determine you know where to go he's trying to assist with that so just one moment and i'll get that up now in this if you hear numbers even numbers like 8 10 and 12 those are the house numbers and they're giving direction based on those So, you know, in this clip, he is trying to, you know, get coverage um, with the Bearcat because, you know, it's usually the vehicle that they can stand behind and um, it will protect them. But in this case, you know, it still did its job. It still protected them. But the shooter was very focused on, um, you know, getting, you know, shots fired into the driver's side. Um with the pictures that I'll be showing, you can actually see that, you know, the shots seem to be concentrated on the right, I'm sorry, the left side of the vehicle, which is where the driver is. So it seems like it was pretty intentional that um, he was shooting in that area. Now, the last clip I'm going to show, and this is mostly, um, mostly a visual, but it is helicopter footage and I just think it's interesting in that it shows um, how they can actually look and view um, when they're searching for someone because this is really rather interesting because it's kind of gridded out the the camera can focus on certain areas um, it can separate the yards from each other so it's pretty interesting but there's not as much conversation on this um, but I still think it's good to look at Okay, I just wanted to give that for reference, you know, to see everything and to, you know, kind of put, your, put yourself in their place where um, you might be seeing it through a helicopter's bird's eye view. One of the um, corporals who was part of this case described the situation as stepping on a rattlesnake with, without seeing it. So he was describing a situation where we all probably can ascertain that if 
you step on a rattlesnake, um, pretty sure you're not doing it intentionally, but you end up stepping on him and he hurts you, but you have no like prior knowledge. So in other words, it's a shock, it's fast, it's scary, um, but you have to you know, keep going in order to try to protect the community. So um, when Francis was not shooting at the Bearcat, he fired at the other officers who were in the area outside of their vehicles. Um, some members of the Newcastle County Police Department were pinned down um, by fire. Um, three of the people that were in the Bearcat were able to exit through the back and climb outside and they had to return fire in order to protect themselves as well. So it really didn't seem like Francis cared if there was even a possibility of a civilian um, you know, being in the area. But considering he had just killed two people that he never even met, I would have been surprised if he actually was concerned about the area. Um, there were some homes that were damaged by the shots. Now, um, after a while, you know, there were no shots fired. It appeared that Francis may have been incapacitated, but of course the police officers needed to proceed with caution as they wouldn't know if he was just trying to lay low um, and ambush them or what was occurring. So it was actually four hours after the shootout that they found his body inside what was described as a makeshift tent. Um, there were pictures of that, so I'll leave them up as well. Um, it definitely was not, you know, like a traditional tent. Um, so, and it's because of this reason, the fact that he actually made it back to the tent where they were not sure whether it was a self-inflicted wound or if it was by an officer, you know, thinking that after he was hit, he crawled back or walked back to the one place of safety that he felt was in the area. But as um, we said before, it was determined to be a um, shot from an officer's weapon that ultimately did lead to his death. Now, Francis was prepared for that day, which does show then, of course, premeditation. And I guess you could say he was prepared as he could be given these types of situations. Um, he wore a vest um, that was used to deflect gunfire. The way it was described in one of the articles was being similar to a load-bearing tactical vest. Now, along with this, he also had a lot of um, casings around him. Um, the weapons that they found were a semi-automatic handgun and a semi-automatic rifle, but they also did a little while later find one more handgun that after testing was determined to be the murder weapon of the Marinos. So as I'm sure most families would react um, to something like this, Sheldon Francis's family did not see this coming at all. They didn't see him as a violent person, at least before the COVID-19 pandemic began. So it does seem like he did start to change some. He was described as, quote, generally quiet and nonviolent, end quote. However, he became paranoid about actually catching COVID. Um, the, one of the ways to describe him would possibly be doomsday prepper or believer. 
Um, one family member who was interviewed said that she did hear a, he or she, um, for privacy, it did not say who it was, but he or she did hear a phone message from his employer um, to advise him that there were some people who tested positive within the facility where he worked. But even later that day, the same relative said she didn't think that anything was wrong. He didn't act like there was. Now, there were two other family members that day who were, you know, with family member number one and you know, they concurred and agreed with the description as well that he was, you know, not a violent person. So I'm sure it came as a complete shock to them as well to find out what had occurred. Now, while reviewing, you know, this information, the investigators heard that um, in some of the video, the fire, the gunfire actually slowed down on his end. And of course, they could correspond that with an event. And that was actually um, once the Bearcat entered the area and he started to aim specifically towards the window. Now, he shot over 78 shots or just around there. And about 40 of them went into the windshield or front of the Bearcat. So he was trying to break that glass just basically by wearing it down. Um, the term used to describe this is called stacking. So he was, even though the, um, the glass was bulletproof, he was working on a kind of a premise that if a lot of force is enacted upon it frequently, then it would eventually break. So this action would show that he was thinking things through, you know, particularly that it was not something that was just done as a spur of a moment and he didn't know anything really about rifles or guns. Um, you know, that was pretty much disproven at that point. Um, and especially with the situation of finding two deceased, well, one deceased person with another in very serious condition and approaching someone who has that much gunfire that you know, once you did find out that they had that much, um, became a huge concern as well. So we know what happened. That was pretty obvious and easy to see. But what we don't know is why. Why would this young man do all of this? Because, you know, there, there was no really clear information as to whether or not he had a criminal history. However, the fact that he was able to own three guns legally since, you know, and I'm going to assume that they were legally because the reports never mentioned anything about, you know, being seized and then sent back or, you know, anything like that. That almost seems to make this even more scary that he did not have the legal access to buy firearms yet he was out there with at least three. Now at the time, um, and still currently, Governor John Carney you know, did a daily um, coronavirus briefing at the time. At the beginning of the briefing, he did bring up the shooting incident. And you know, he said that, and I quote, it's really sad news to think of that kind of event on what is really sacred ground. 
He also then continued to say that he had attended a number of different burials or ceremonies at that particular graveyard or cemetery. Now, with this case, it's probably never going to have definitive answers. Um, I know that since COVID began, there's been a lot of discussion about the effects of it on mental health, with a lot of the emphasis being placed on isolation um, from other people. You also then have, um, you know, the shutdowns, which affected the economy. And in this case, it seemed like there was a very intense fear of contracting COVID. So you know, that's another aspect which I don't think has really been explored that much. But this is a very important time right now where, as a nation, you know, we're recognizing that mental health is not that same old taboo that it used to be, that people can discuss their mental health issues um, with you know, a doctor that's ready and able to help. And, and theoretically, everything should work out fine because the patient was completely honest with the therapist or psychiatrist. Um, and the psychiatrist was able to both go through counseling and medication if needed to try to get that person on the right track. The problem is... And again, I want to repeat, I'm not saying that this was or was um, a result of mental health issues. However, when the term paranoid is used, it does sound like it's heading towards that path. So while the taboos have really lessened, there's still a pretty big obstacle in healthcare. Um, you know, it's... It's a matter of what will be covered. Will it be covered wholly as far as, you know, your insurance goes? Will it be covered by a certain copay? Um, are there multiple medications? And this is just with the actual um, physical part of the body. And when you add in that the body is more than just what people see, then it's a step going in the right direction. There are situations that continue to be obstacles in the treatment of mental health. Some of it is the aforementioned coverage. It could be accessibility to get to the doctor. Um, with many doctors now doing telemedicine, there's the possibility of seeing that doctor um, you know, through a video conference if that's something that they choose to do at this point. So, you know, even... If there is coverage and it seems like it's, you know, very extensive or really good coverage, there could, you know, always be limitations in the number of appointments that you have, um, certain amounts of copays, and then, of course, just with Wi-Fi, um, being able to download something to your phone or computer if you don't necessarily, you know, have something that you can reach into and... and be able to, to go to. Accessibility means different things to different people, and it's based on their individual circumstances. So the needs of one is different than the next person, different than the next person. So again, I can't say whether or not it was a mental health issue in this case, 
And in saying that, I'm not saying that if someone does have uh, mental health needs, that something like this will occur. I have, you know, been treated for anxiety and depression. I've had different insurances where one was almost like, you know, as, as long as your doctor agrees, you need it. No problem. Everything's covered to really just trying and trying and trying to get coverage. So sometimes that seems like that can be the most stressful and anxiety inducing parts of a whole process. Um, so because of my experiences with mental health issues, I really am a big proponent of, you know, um, having accessibility to the healthcare that we need. But unfortunately, right now, it's not something that we do have um, on a consistent basis. It's not like everybody in the country has the exact same coverage. So the sooner that we can start getting information out regarding that, the better. Um, another aspect in getting any mental health needs met, um, you know, that may need to be met is the actual ability to recognize that you need that assistance. And again, just to reiterate, we don't have that as any solid evidence. That's what occurred here. But some of the phrasing used by his family, his family seems to look like it's leaning in that direction. Um, another issue with recognizing the need for mental health is, as individuals, we may not necessarily be able to see what's going on within ourselves. I kind of think of it this way as standing in front of a mirror and you can see, you know, everything that's in the front of that mirror, everything is perfect and you're all put together. But on your back, um, whether it be your hair, your jacket, anything else is a mess. And the only way for someone or the only way for you to see that is for someone to jump in and, you know, say, let me help you with this. And you actually, you know, say, turn around and can see that you did need help. Kind of a weird analogy, maybe. It's just, it's what I immediately think of is looking in the mirror, but not being able to see everything. So sometimes it's necessary for families and friends to, you know, take that active role. But at the same time, the friends and family aren't trained you know, in social work or counseling or things like that necessarily. So it, there could be missed opportunities after seeing red flags just because, you know, that not everybody has experiences with this type of situation. So in this case, we had two vulnerable member, members of our community were targeted. Um, just at random. Um, are more mental health resources needed? Yes. Um, again, just my opinion as to whether or not it played a role in this um, crime. But, you know, I think that Francis needed some type of treatment and you know, just to deal with the fear so that he could get along in his everyday life. But that didn't happen. Um, but also to see just the time frame that this happened in May, it was only two months. So it seems like if mental health did play a role in this, it was a very quick change. You know, 
but even if there were mental health issues that came into play, it does not excuse or forgive the actions that he took. The fact that he planned things out, he had a tactical, tactical vest on, he had three different weapons. These were things that he thought out. So that does not negate his responsibility in this event, even if there were some mental health issues in here. Um, what he did was abhorrent, and if he had survived, he should have received, you know, the longest possible or harshest sentence that there was just to make sure that everybody else was safe. We know that the Marino family will never be the same, and their remaining sons want justice, and they deserve to have it, but the man who, who took their parents away and caused that pain and suffering is not around to answer those questions. Now, one thing I just did think of while going through the reports is, you know, using the term paranoia as some of his family members used, I almost wonder if the fact that, you know, he did have this makeshift tent in the area, which means he was staying there, if seeing the Marinos come in and out of the same location every single day, if maybe that paranoia kicked in and you know he wasn't sure what was occurring with seeing the same people coming in day after day after day. Now, earlier I said that this could resonate with me in so many different ways. And, you know, one of the antidotes just kind of takes me back to you know, my childhood and some of the things my mother would cook. And that was squash and zucchini in the summer. My dad still grows squash and zucchini. And, you know, if I'm ever out there and he has extra, he gives me some and I come home and I'm sure I made it, make it differently than she may have made it. But, you know, it was a summer dish that we all enjoyed. So when my dad would give me that, I knew we were having squash and or zucchini that night. And Lydia even had a herb garden um, at her home. Now, I have tried but not succeeded in having an herb garden. But that just, again, goes to show that, you know, she expressed herself in cooking, and that was a labor of love. Um, other things that still, you know, kind of hit me hard is, you know, my niece also has cerebral palsy, and I do worry about her on, you know, what may happen when my brother and sister-in-law pass away. You know, how will she adjust? Um, you know, she needs constant help with mobility. So, you know, just having that aspect as well kind of, you know, brought things home. Now, lastly is the cemetery. My uncle had lung cancer for a very long time. Um, it was due to asbestos, um, you know, exposure to asbestos uh, many, many, many years ago. And my dad had a large family, and this is his last sibling that passed away, and that was almost close to 30 years ago now. But my uncle almost seemed immortal to me because there were cases where there was an event and my mom or dad would tell me, well, he won't be here, you know, because he's not feeling well or he's still recovering from surgery. But most of the time, 
guess what? He was there. It's like he wanted to be there and he made every effort that he could to be there for me. And he is buried in that cemetery. My aunt, his wife, she is buried there as well. And she was just this warm, welcoming presence that lived about a, you know, 45 minutes to an hour from my home. And whenever I would go through that area, whether I was going to and from college, I would always set aside time to spend with her. So, you know, looking at this cemetery that was, you know, debased by this act, you know, at, at one time I did look at it with warm feelings. You know, not everybody would look at a cemetery that way, but I'm thankful that I had them in my life and that they did live, you know, a long life and that they're together and that I have the memories that I have of them so I can be happy and rejoice in that. But now to know that two men and their families, when they go visit their parents and brother will also be on the same ground that they were murdered on. And so that's just that juxtaposition, but at the same time, that synchronicity, you know, it's like, you know, it's just so hard to describe that everything like that is going on at the same time in the same location. So, you know, again, it's, it was really difficult at times to even think about, you know, the grounds of the cemetery to have that occur. So I hate to end with, once again, not really having a resolution as to why something occurred, but I did want to bring this to the attention or to bring it out into the spotlight as an understanding of, you know, maybe watching for those red flags or things that um, a loved one might be doing differently. You know, this story needs to be told and the Marinos deserve to be remembered. They were very loved and they loved a lot of people. So, you know, I really wanted to get their story out. Now, um, I will go ahead and probably get the podcast up um, sometime shortly after recording. And though the video will take a little bit longer, so that may be coming out Wednesday or Thursday, which would be the 22nd or the 23rd. Um, but the audio for the podcast should be up by um, the end of Tuesday, which is the 21st. Um, just takes me a little bit longer to get used to doing all the video editing and adding in the um, the video of you know, the drone coverage and body cams. So I'd like to thank you all for sticking in with this with me. Um, you know, I know that I sometimes go really deep into the stories. That's what I really want to to learn about the people involved. So um, I hope everyone does have a very safe and happy holidays. I will be posting again in approximately two weeks. I know I don't have a specifically set schedule, um, but I will you know, get something out in about a two-week time period. Um, there are definitely a few cases that I'm working on um, right now that are very, very interesting. 
Now, what I will ask too is that if you have an opportunity to, depending on what platform you're listening on, to subscribe or like or leave a comment, what that does is it brings the podcast up in the algorithm, however, however that's calculated, and makes it easier for people to find if they're looking for this type of content. Um, so I would really appreciate that. It would help the channel grow a lot. I appreciate everybody tuning in to listen and again, have a safe and happy holiday that's upcoming. Um, and I will talk to you soon. Bye.